0: Chapter 2, moving on into chapter 3. As you can see on the slide, it's in page 986 in the Black Pew Bible in front of you, if you need to use that. And if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take that home with you and read it. Let me go ahead and read the text. We're going to be going from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17, to chapter 3, verse 10. I'll read the text, and then we'll pray, and then we'll dive in together. Chapter 2, verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you, Face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it came to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now Timothy has come to us from you And has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. And for this reason, brothers, in all of our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face. And supply what is lacking in your faith. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Father, we come before you with hearts that are desperate, with lives that are uh, incomplete, with spiritual formation that needs more of you. So Father, we ask that you would give us more of you this morning as we listen to your word Uh, Be with me, Lord. Uh, Help me to communicate that which comes from you and from you alone. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. So, you remember from our introductory sermon in the book of 1 Thessalonians that when Paul arrived in Thessalonica, it was with a heavy heart and a broken body. He had suffered much, stoning, floggings, beatings, but he was still moving forward. God's kindness towards Paul never failed, and as he preached the word in Thessalonica, you remember, a great number of Jews and Gentiles came to know the Lord. They were saved. And kind of like a teenager falling in love at summer camp, Paul really quickly developed a deep and abiding affection for these Christians in Thessalonica, so much so that when he was shuttled out of Thessalonica in the middle of the night to escape for his own safety, he described what happened that night as being torn away from them, right? If you remember from chapter 2, verse 7 and verse 11, Paul talks about the Thessalonians as his children, right? He's been like a mother to them in this way, and he's been like a father to them in that way. And then here, as we move into chapter 2 and 3, the latter half of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, Paul uses this language of being torn away from them, which makes me think about uh children being torn away from their parents. And it was at this point in my sermon prep that I thought, oh, I'll use an illustration to really drive that home. And then I thought, no, it's not good for me to cry at the very beginning of the sermon, so I won't do that. But you understand what I'm driving at, right? Paul feels like, as a father, he's been torn away from this church, and it's killing him. Now, even though that Paul, even though Paul understood that it was part of God's sovereign plan for his life to be moved away from the church at Thessalonica, that did not mean that he thought that the door was closed to them forever. Paul thought, and for good reason, that he could get back to them. As a matter of fact, our text this morning tells us that Paul tried to get back to them over and over again. Go back to uh, chapter three, uh, seventeen, Excuse me, chapter two, verses seventeen and eighteen. He says, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short, short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, right? We, we kept trying to get back to you. Why? Because we wanted to come to you. Paul thought, I, I can get back to them. This doesn't have to be the last time that I see them. For Paul, apparently letters, you know, his correspondence with them just, it didn't cut it. That wasn't enough. He had to be with them in person. And apparently, Satan prevented Paul's return. We'll talk about that more later in the sermon. So you remember how the journey goes, right? Paul, Silas, and Timothy carried on their missionary journey. They left Thessalonica, and they went on to Berea. And when they got to Berea, they were attacked there, and they had to flee again. And then finally, they ended up in Athens. And by the time that Paul gets to Athens, he is a wreck. He can't eat, he can't sleep, he can't stop thinking about the Thessalonians. He's like an anxious parent, right? So he sent Timothy back to them. Look at chapter three, verses one and two. He says, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's coworker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in the faith. Paul wanted Timothy to go back and to make sure that everything was okay. That the church was going to be all right. And then, as you remember, Paul left Athens and he made his way to the city of Corinth. While he was in Corinth, he finally broke down and he said, I have to know how the church is doing. I can't bear it any longer. So, what did he do? He said, Timothy, come back to me. Come to me at Corinth and tell me what's going on in Thessalonica. You can see that in chapter 3, verse 5. For this reason, when we could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Okay, so Paul sent Timothy back to him. And Timothy brought good news. Look at verses 6 and 7. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. Mm. Paul was anxious. He had knots in his stomach. He was constantly worried. Probably had shingles breaking out in hives. He was so worried about this church. Timothy comes back. He says, Paul, listen, things are going better than you could have ever imagined. Paul goes, whew, okay, this is good. Thank you, Lord. But notice the language of relief that Paul uses here. He's not primarily relieved to find out that the Thessalonians are safe. Remember, there was great physical danger. He doesn't even mention that in the text. Paul is not relieved to find out that persecution has died down in Thessalonica. He doesn't make any mention of that. No, what Paul is relieved to find out is that the faith of the Thessalonians is unmoved. Paul is relieved to find out that they are persevering. That's gonna be the main thing that we're paying attention to this morning. That's gonna be the first point of a six-point sermon. So, point number one, perseverance. Note-takers, point number one, perseverance. In order to understand the main emphasis of this morning's text, uh, the great concern that Paul has in this morning's text, you need to see how much Paul has to say about faith, uh, the faith of the Thessalonians. So, let's start by looking at chapter 3, verse 2. He says, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. Right? So why did he send Timothy? Was it to get a news update about persecution? No. It was to establish and exhort them in their faith so that they wouldn't walk away from Jesus. Then you can see the same thing again in verse 5. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. Right? Right? That's what I'm concerned about. That's what I want to hear about. Then you could go down to verses six and seven. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith, right, that's verse six and verse seven, for this, uh, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith, right? What, what's Paul comforted by? It's to know that they're persevering in the faith. And if we jump a little bit ahead to verse 10, he says, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Why does Paul ultimately want to get back to them? Because he thinks he has something that he needs to give to them in person that will strengthen their faith. This is Paul's main priority. This is his main concern. It's not their health. It's not the lack of or presence of persecution. It's not their finances. It's their perseverance. All of Paul's desires and actions and prayers and plans are oriented around that. Paul has already painted this picture for us as, of himself as kind of like the, the, the parental figure over this church at Thessalonica, and the, the Christians there as kind of his children. So I thought maybe the easiest application point for this, for this sermon would be directly to parents in the room. Uh, but this also applies to future parents, and it also applies to grandparents, and it also applies to people who want to, you know, help other parents in the room, you know, be the good aunts and uncles that you can be. So, for parents in the room, if I would ask you to sit down and to write out 10 things that you want most for your children in this life, what would make the list? Good health? Good health? their intellect, manners. Some of you guys are like, uh, uh, D1 football. Am I saying that right? F- sports and stuff. That they find a good spouse, that they have a good career, that they be financially stable. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things, actually, other than the sports stuff. I think all of those things are good things that we should all aspire to. The sports, I just don't really know. But I wonder where faith would make it on your list. Like if you, were to, if you were to number these, you know, one through ten in order of most important to least important, I wonder where the faith of your children would go on that list. As I was writing this portion of the sermon in my study, I found myself asking myself this question about my kids and, and our parenting. You know, for me and Amber, is the faith of Patience and Isabella at the top of our concern? And then I thought about it another way. I thought, well, would I be content with my kids if I raised them up to be strong and happy and healthy, to be polite and industrious and creative and educated? If they got a good husband and, or they were strong and single and had a good career, they had all the right social skills, they built up a good 401K, they were well-respected members of the community. If they did all of that and ultimately never came to know the Lord, Would I be content with that? Parents, I'd encourage you to ask yourself the same question. Now, for some of us, uh, asking ourselves introspective questions is difficult. You know, look inside yourself. I can't. I'm blind. So let me help you. Thanks. Uh, Let me help you by giving you some diagnostic questions that you can ask yourself to help yourself see if if you have the right priority with your children. Do you find yourself anxious for the faith of your children in the same way that Paul is anxious for the faith of these Thessalonians? Or is it just an afterthought? Do you go out of your way to establish and exhort your children in their faith, the way that Timothy does in this text? Or do you just assume that their faith will simply develop and blossom on its own? When you think about the education of your children, are you primarily concerned with with whether or not they can read and write well, whether they're going to excel in the math and sciences of the world, or are you also concerned that they know God's word, that they've developed godly character, that they've understood spiritual things, that they've understood that the point of all education is Christ himself? Do you regularly check in on your children to learn about their faith? Do you recognize the dangers to their faith? Do you think about, do you worry about sometimes obstacles to your children's faith? The pastor's kid. Are you comforted and brought great joy when you see evidence of faith in your children's lives? Do you get excited about your children's faith? I mean, in verse eight, Paul is ecstatic when he thinks about the good news of the Thessalonians' faith. He's like beside himself with joy. Is that how you feel when you see evidence of grace in your children? Do you pray for your children and their faith? You say, "God, please. I'm not good enough. I can't do it. I need your help here. Do you make an effort to be actively and personally involved with your children in their faith? Or do you just assume that it's somebody else's job? I'm not saying we're never going to have a youth pastor in this church. But I am saying if you're a member of this church, you should understand that we don't understand it to be the pastor's job to raise your children. We understand it to be the pastor's job to equip you to raise your children in the faith. And we'll be here to help in any way that we can. But it's your responsibility. It's our responsibility to help you along the way. Uh, somebody's children are being out of control right now. This is ironic that it's happening right when I'm preaching. Isabella Demars, sit down and stop moving. Sorry, guys. And all the way, by the way, feel free to get on to my kids for me. We're in this together, okay? We're in this together. All right. The faith of our children should be something that we are anxious to keep at the top of our parenting priorities. When it comes to the faith of the Thessalonians, Paul has knots in his stomach. He's torn up about it. Paul uses the same anxious language in chapter three, verse one, and in chapter three, verse five. He uses this language of when I could bear it no longer. You guys recognize that language, when I could bear it no longer? That's like somebody who's like deathly afraid of the doctor and doesn't want to go, but finally goes because they're so sick they don't they don't have a choice. You know, when I could bear it no longer. This is someone who's afraid of the you know, the drill at the dentist who ends up with a toothache. They go, Ugh, I don't want to go, but I had to because my tooth was hurting me so bad. When I could bear it no longer, I finally went to the dentist's office. For Paul, the faith of the Thessalonians is not an afterthought. It's something that's eating away at him. It's eating away at him because he loves them so much. It's eating away at him because he understands the weight of eternity and he can't just carry on the rest of his life as the faith of his people seems to be hanging in the balance. You should know that this is how I often feel about you as a pastor. I, I just, maybe parents are the only ones who really can understand the kind of anxiety that a pastor carries for his people and for their perseverance in the faith. You should know that I'm very often driven to prayer for you. I wish I could say that I just prayed about everything that needed to be prayed about in the life of the church, but that just doesn't happen. What most often happens is that I am concerned and I'm driven to prayer. As I think about the world and the flesh and the devil and the way that any of those things may overtake us if we are not firmly rooted in Christ. You know, I could care less about this building. Let it fall down around us. I could care less about my career. I could care less about our prominence in the area. But I really, really care. I, I stay awake at night thinking about, praying about your faith, your perseverance, you continuing to follow Jesus. And you should also know that since I'm being so heavy right now, in the same way that Paul says that he has brought great joy. By the faith of the Thessalonians, I am brought great joy by you, the members of Sixth Avenue. Point number two, Satan. If you're wondering, like, Sean, I don't really believe you, the way you said that. You didn't seem very joyous. Well, I'm trying not to cry, so leave me alone. Point number two, Satan. I was once involved with the discipleship of a young woman who had come out of a very difficult life of drugs and crime and all kinds of terrible abuse. I first came to know this young woman when I was on staff at a, a different church, and uh, she had been doing very well for about a year when I got involved with her situation. Very well. One Sunday, after I got through preaching, this young woman approached me, you know, kind of pulled me aside, and she was like, "Hey, great job preaching, all that stuff." A really good sermon. But hey, uh, you don't actually believe in, you know, demons and like Satan and all that stuff, right? Like you don't actually believe in that, do you? I told her, "Yes, in fact, I do believe in Satan and demons and all of that stuff." And she was shocked. She's like, "Oh, I can get on board with God and you know, you know, he helped me get off drugs and all that stuff, but the idea that Satan's after out to get me, I just I don't know." <clears throat> As I tell you this story, this young woman is sitting in a prison cell in South Alabama. She's lost her children. She's lost her sobriety. And she has abandoned the faith. Satan was not real to this young woman. But Satan is very real to Paul. In this morning's text, Paul tells us two things about Satan. The first thing that he tells us is that Satan is the one who prevented him from going back to Thessalonica. The second thing that Paul tells us, and this is the main one we're going to focus on, is that a good deal of Paul's fear regarding the faith of the Thessalonians is fear because of the activity of Satan to disrupt their faith. You can see that if you look at chapter three, verse five. He says, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. Like, uh, tell me something, Timothy. Why? For fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Friends, do not believe the lie, the, the modern lie that's really just as old as any other lie in the book that says that Satan is not somehow, someway involved with some plot or scheme to try to shipwreck your faith. Satan has trying to get, been trying to get the people of God to disbelieve the word of God and the promises of God since he convinced Adam and Eve to doubt God and disobey God in the Garden of Eden. As a matter of fact, the language that Paul uses in this morning's text when he refers to Satan is the language of Genesis 3. He calls Satan the tempter. Maybe you're thinking, Sean, we shouldn't be afraid of Satan. We have the victory in Jesus, amen? Satan can't touch us. Well, friends, that is the kind of arrogance that leads mighty nations into losing wars. That is the kind of arrogance that Satan is counting on in his attempt to destroy your faith. On top of that, it's just it's a kind of thinking that has no basis in the Bible. Listen, if the Bible taught us to think that way, then we would we would be right to think like that. But does that sound like the language that Paul uses about Satan and victory in this morning's text? No. Ain't nobody got ain't nobody worried about Satan. We got the victory. That's not what Paul says. Paul says, I was super concerned that Satan had tempted you and caused you to lose your faith. It's a very real concern. Remember how Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer? His disciples come to him and they go, Lord, teach us how to pray. And he goes, okay, here are six things. Remember what he says towards the end? Deliver us from the evil one. When it comes to things like sin... We know that we ultimately have victory over sin because of Jesus, but that doesn't mean that we should let our guard down and assume that sin can't overtake us here and now. You remember what God said about sin, crouching at the door, waiting to overtake Cain. That's true for our lives here and now. Jesus has given us victory over the world, but the entire New Testament is still crying out at us, telling us to be careful of worldliness, lest the world overtake us. It's true that ultimately Christians have the ability to defeat Satan because Christ has defeated Satan. We win, he loses. But that does not mean that he should be underestimated or ignored. Now, if I were preaching this sermon in a different church, maybe in a church that has like more of a charismatic bent to it, I'd be very careful to qualify all the stuff that I'm saying here. You know, I'd be like, you know, Satan is not sovereign. He's not omnipresent. He's not under every rock and behind every corner. And he's not the cause of every bad spiritual thing that happens in your life. But we're not at a church like that. We're at a church like our church, where I think the greater danger is probably that we ignore Satan, that we tend to think that he can't affect us as much as he absolutely can. So, brothers and sisters... Don't overesteem him, but do not underestimate him either. Be on guard. Point number three, sovereignty. This point's going to be real short and real simple. Satanic activity and opposition is real, but so is our sovereign God. Please note that Satan's activity did not cause Paul to cease his activity. It's not like Paul said, oh, dang it. Satan has prevented me from going back to the Thessalonica. I guess they're on their own. You know, what are you going to do? You win some, you lose some. I hope they make it. No. Paul says, all right, let's figure out what we're going to do here. He tries to adapt and overcome. There's a popular saying in the military at the higher levels of command, and it says this, no plan survives contact with the enemy. A more popular version of that is from Mike Tyson who says, everyone has a plan until they get hit in the mouth, right? The point is, we should try to plan to follow Jesus, to carry out the Great Commission, to do all the things that God has called us to do, but we should also understand that that our enemy has a plan, right? If you could play chess and you could decide every move on the board, it would be the easiest game in the world. Unfortunately, you have to contend from someone with someone on the other side of the board who's trying to counter every move you make. Now, in chess, it's just you and your own intellect, which means I don't play chess. But for us, we have a sovereign God who's leading us and guiding us. And my point here is that even if Satan does disrupt our plans... Because God is sovereign and in control of our plans, we can continue to press forward and to try to figure out some way around his work and activity in our lives. Point number four, selflessness. Selflessness. Do you think it was easy for Paul as he moved on to leave Timothy behind? Right, it's Paul, Silas, and Timothy, the three amigos, Now it's just Paul and Silas. You think that was easy for Paul to give Timothy up to go back to that church? No. Especially when you understand just how important Timothy is to Paul. Paul calls Timothy my true child in the faith in chapter 1, verse 12 of 1 Timothy. In 1 Corinthians, he calls Timothy my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Right? It's a really big deal. Who do you think was there to aid Paul when he had to escape by night in Thessalonica Thessalonica in Berea? Who do you think was there to nurse Paul back to health when he was so ill that he couldn't carry on his missionary journeys? Who do you think was there to help pick Paul's half-dead carcass off the ground after he had been beaten and stoned and flogged? Who do you think was there to comfort Paul, to encourage Paul, to pray with Paul, to write for Paul in the long nights and hard days of frontier missionary efforts. Well, it was Timothy, his beloved son. In giving Timothy up for the sake of this church at Thessalonica, Paul is giving up his own good and comfort for the spiritual good of others. And friends, in this, I think we see just a tremendous display of the gospel. Think about Jesus dwelling eternally with the other members of the Trinity. You remember how he talks in John 17, right? He's like, yeah, before the foundations of the world, it's just me and you, just full of love and glory, right? That was Jesus' whole existence, his whole experience, knowing nothing but love and joy and, and fellowship with the other members of the Trinity. And he emptied himself of that. He walked away from that. He came down to come be with us here. And the Father sent him to do that. The father was enjoying the son as much as the son was enjoying the father, but the father sent the son to take care of us, to meet our spiritual needs. Do you think that was easy for the father, especially knowing what what the son would have to go through in order to accomplish our spiritual good? The father didn't turn everything black at the crucifixion because he was enjoying what was happening on that day. Nevertheless, the father did sacrifice the son. Did you know that uh, some churches have non-compete clauses that they have their staff members sign when they join the church, when they come on staff? Oh, yeah. If you're like, Sean, what is that? It's, it's this thing where like basically I'm going to hire you, and it's from the business world, and uh, because I'm going to hire you, uh, if you ever leave here, Uh, because we're gonna pour all this time and money and stuff into you, Uh, we don't want you to go over to our competitors, right? So if you leave us, then you can't go to work anywhere else within X miles for X amount of time, right? There are some churches that have their staff members do that. Sometimes it's not formal. Sometimes it's not a contract. Sometimes it's informal. You know, we poured a lot into you. We've done a lot for you. I know you wouldn't go to that other church across the town, across town. And they can couch it in all the right Christian language that doesn't make it sound as bad as it really is. Well, friends, what a contrast is that kind of ministry, that mentality of ministry, to what we see of Paul and Timothy in this morning's text. In Paul's mind, Timothy did not belong to Paul. He was not Paul's exclusive property, even though he had a bunch of good reasons to claim rights to Timothy. He still didn't think about him that way. Paul says, no, Timothy belongs to Jesus. He's not a soldier in my army. He's a soldier in Christ's army. There's a mission that needs to be accomplished, and it may be bigger than what I'm doing right here, right now. This other church may need him more than I need him. I don't know much about sports, as we've already established, but as I sit in Buffalo Wild Wings and listen to what's happening on the screens around me, I'm learning more. And... One of the things that I know about in sports is that teams are always trying to build their bench. You guys know what I'm talking about, sports guys, right? They're always trying to get the best guys to join their team so that they have a deep bench, right? They got the best passers and the best shooters and the, the best defenders, right? They're building their bench, right? Well, some churches do that. They try to build their ministry bench. They got the best preacher and the best administrative pastor and the best executive pastor and the best counseling pastor. And and look look at our superstar lineup of pastors here. And we have to hold on to them ever so tightly because we've spent so much trying to build this team. Well, this approach to ministry just could not be more out of line with the spirit of true gospel ministry. You should know that I've intentionally tried to shape the ministry of Sixth Avenue to reflect the kind of selflessness in ministry that Paul displays in this situation. Long before maybe half of you were here, you should know that one of the only things that we had going for us from like the outsider's perspective in the life of this church was our music. Grant played the guitar and uh, we had somebody else who played the piano and they worked really well together and our music was really great. And uh, that brother wasn't content at the church. And so I said, brother, go find somewhere where you're content. And I really meant it, even though we were going to lose our piano player. You should know that when I hired Luke recently, uh, I told him that even though we were pouring into him, that it may not be that the Lord's will is for him to stay here with us. It could just be that he's with us for six months, we disciple him, train him up, prepare him, and he goes somewhere else. And the Lord uses him really well in some other church. And I really meant it. You should know that in with Will, as first as an intern and now as a PA, I've tried to pour all of myself into Will, give him everything that I have, which isn't much. But Will, you're, you're getting what I got, buddy. And uh, you know all of that, knowing that Will could end up somewhere else. And if he does, it's okay, right? and pouring into Will, or into Luke, or into anybody, Dom, Jacob. I'm not pouring into Sixth Avenue Community Church only. God is going to use the men and the women in this church in ways that I can't even begin to comprehend. And shouldn't we rejoice if that's what God is doing? If God is building up his church, even if it's outside of these four walls? Have you not been paying attention during our pastoral prayer? How every single week we pray for other churches? It's, it's from the Bible. That's not like some quirky thing that Sean invented, right? We're caring about other churches because it's the biblical thing to do. Point number three, joy and glory. Let's look at chapter two, verse 19. For what is our hope? Or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming. Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Now look at chapter 3, verse 9. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? In both of these verses, Paul is talking about joy and glory kind of interchangeably. Here's what Paul is saying. As Paul thinks about the Thessalonians now in the present and their faith and how they're doing, he says, man, you're bringing me great joy. Also, it's like you're putting a crown of glory on my head. Uh, in the ancient world, like racers, when they would run the race and when they would win, there would be like a, a golden wreath that would be placed on your head and it would connote glory that you would receive as the one who was victorious, right? Paul says, as I think about you guys now and the way you're persevering in the faith now and the way you're following Jesus now, I'm full of joy, and I feel the weight of glory. But what Paul is also saying in chapter 2, verse 19, is that on the last day, you will be my joy and glory. How does that work? Well, I think about it like a parent, right? I think about my daughters now, regardless of their sometimes not stellar behavior in church service on Sundays. I look at my daughters, and I am overjoyed by them. I look at the women that they're becoming, and it's like they're a crown of glory on my head. But I look forward to the day when they're not seven and nine, but when they're grown, maybe they're married, maybe they're single, I don't know, where hopefully they're strong and independent, and they're off doing life on their own, and they're following Jesus faithfully, Ah, then they're going to be my joy and glory. Those of you who have adult kids who are doing really well, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I think about the same thing from the perspective of a pastor. I look out at our church right now, and I am just overjoyed by you. I talked about this last night at the Christmas party. You guys are my glory. I don't boast in anything except for the fact that God has done an amazing work in the life of this church. But man, that's nothing compared to the feeling that I'm going to feel on the day, if we make it to that day, Lord willing, by his grace, where I'll stand before the judgment seat of God. And Jesus will tell me how I did as a minister on that day. And if we make it to that day, and if I'm faithful to that day, the joy and glory that I'll experience then. That's what Paul is talking about. He's waiting for the day when he stands before Jesus, and Jesus looks at the Thessalonians, and then he looks at Paul, and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. One more point, and then we'll head to Buffalo Wild Wings, okay? Point number six, presence. Presents. Kids, I'm I'm not talking about the things that go under the Christmas trees. Thanks. Uh, I had to take a trip out of town a couple weeks ago, and uh, while I was away, I FaceTimed with uh, Amber and the girls, and it was great. Like, I praise God that uh, every night at 8 o'clock during their bedtime, uh, I could talk with my kids even while I was out of town, right? Praise God for whoever invented that technology. But there is no substitute. For actually being at home and telling my girls goodnight in person, we have this whole routine that we do. Where like we we do the devotional when we're at our best. We do our devotional, and then we go in the room and they lay down, and I start singing. Jesus loves me, this I know. And then uh, while I'm singing, I tickle them. Bella likes me to push her. Patience likes me to tickle her, right? And then I give them a little kiss after I finish singing, and then I say, "Love you. See you tomorrow." be good girls, and then I turn off the lights and close the door. That's our routine, right? And then they never go to sleep, and then I yell at them for an hour, okay? (laughs) But that's our routine, right? Uh, That is not the same thing as when I talk with them on the phone for two minutes over FaceTime. There's something about being physically present with them that I experience in my relationship with them as a father that I cannot experience through virtual presence, The modern world has become increasingly comfortable with trying to replace true presence, physical presence, actual presence, with virtual presence, and it has only gotten worse during this pandemic. To compound the problem, many churches have begun to say things like, you know, maybe this is God's way of trying to tell us about a new way to do church. You know, we're going to have online campuses and online ministry, and you don't ever even have to come to the building." If there's anything in this whole world that I'm sure about, my friends, I am sure that God is not trying to tell the church that. In this morning's text, Paul is obsessed with being physically present with the Thessalonians. Over and over again, he talks about being face-to-face with them. In chapter 2, verse 17, Paul is clear to say, he says, listen, we were torn away from you, but even though we were, my heart was still with you. But then in the very next breath, he says, and I desire to get back to you. Look at verse 17, chapter 2, 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. It was in being torn away from the Thessalonians that Paul realized how desperate he was to get back to the Thessalonians. And this is not a one-way street. The Thessalonians want to be with Paul as well. Look at chapter three, verse six. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. So it's not just like Paul the discipler wants to see the church. No, the church wants Paul to be back there as well. Why did Paul want to be with the Thessalonians in person so bad? Because there's a kind of discipleship that can only take place in person. This is why Paul sent Timothy back to them to exhort them and to establish them. If letters were good enough, Paul just would have stocked up on stationery. He would have got a bunch of stamps, you know? It's time to be pen pals. But letters weren't enough. And you guys know, Paul was not afraid to write letters. He was happy to do it, but letters weren't good enough. There's something about physical presence that matters. We tend to not think about that when it comes to preaching. A lot of multi-site churches are happy to have their video pastor, you know, funneled in. You know, he'll be in some central location, and then you'll be in your satellite location. And we'll be like, oh yeah, we'll just we'll listen to our pastor that way. But you know what always has to be live in these churches? Music. So intuitively, we understand something about physical presence. We don't want our musicians to be funneled into us from somewhere else. We want them to be there with us in the same room. In verse 10, Paul says that even though Timothy has come and delivered good news, about their faith, and even though he knows they're doing well, he still prays earnestly night and day that he can be with them again in person. Look at chapter three, verse 10. As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. That's why Paul, in his second missionary journey, went back and visited the churches that he planted on his first missionary journey, Even though Paul wrote letters to them after his first missionary journey, letters weren't enough. He had to go back and visit them in person. Now, I can imagine maybe somebody sitting here listening a little skeptical about this presence and and asking the question, well, Sean, if, if physical presence is so important, then why isn't God physically present here with us now? Well, I have a couple of responses to that. The first response is this. You have to remember, friends, that God did dwell with man. And it was not his initiative that disrupted that physical presence. It was not God that turned away from us. It was we who turned away from God. We rejected God. We rebelled against him. We had everything that he made available to us to enjoy for our good and his glory. We turned our back on him. Now, you may be thinking, Sean, that wasn't me. I wasn't there in the garden. But you were. If you think that you would have been in that situation and you wouldn't have done anything different than friend, I just don't think you understand yourself very well and I don't think you understand sin. The second thing to consider is that even after the fall, after God was separated from us in the garden, God made a way to come back and to be present with his people. It's a storyline that you can trace throughout the entire Bible. Almost immediately after God casts mankind out of his presence in the garden, he begins to initiate a loving relationship, a fellowship, a covenant. He forms a people for himself, and he says, I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people, and I will dwell with you. And then he does. First, as he rescues his people from the land of Egypt, taking them to the promised land. He dwells with them in a pillar of fire and a cloud. Then he establishes the tabernacle. You remember inside the tabernacle, God dwells with his people. Then You remember after the tabernacle, once they get into the promised land, a temple is built. God's presence comes in and fills the temple. That's why the temple is so significant in the Old Testament. If you're wondering, why are these Jewish people so worried about the temple? What's the big deal of the temple? The temple is... God's presence, literally dwelling with God's people. But then you remember the temple was destroyed. The Israelites were in despair. And then Jesus comes. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word dwelt among us. In the incarnation of Christ, which we're going to celebrate uh, probably individually and as families at Christmas. In the incarnation of Christ, God comes and dwells with us fully in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. But after Jesus left, he didn't leave us alone. He promised that he would leave someone with us, a counselor, a comforter. And that's the person of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit He's not just kind of around us, you know, like a presence, a force that's kind of like in the ether. It's in the air. No. The promise that Jesus has for us in the Holy Spirit is that God will live in us. And then that's still not the end of the good news. God living in us, what could be better? Well, let me ask you this. Do you always feel the reality of the Holy Spirit living in you? No. No, you, 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 you quench the Holy Spirit. You, you do all kinds of things to work against the Holy Spirit. You do everything and you, and I do too, we all do things that cause our awareness of the presence of the Spirit in our hearts to be turned down like a dimmer switch. Now, friends, the final promise of the gospel is that one day we will get to dwell with God and see him face to face. This promise is not for all people. It's made available to all people, all tongues, tribes, nations, young, old, black, white, smart, dumb, male, female, doesn't matter. But this promise of seeing God face to face in the way that Adam and Eve did in the garden, this is a promise that's only available to those who will turn away from their sin. The thing that that separated us from his presence in the first place. If you'll turn away from your sin and if you'll turn to Jesus, you can dwell with God through his son. Hmm. The third thing I want to bring up on this point is that, actually, you know what? Let me move on. One final thing to say about this, the nature of this face-to-face ministry. We have to remember that discipleship is not information dump. You cannot just drag and click spiritual formation from your life to someone else's. It doesn't matter how many books you read, how many podcasts you listen to. It doesn't matter how much Bible knowledge you have. Spiritual formation is not just a bunch of zeros and ones that come together and form data that can be transferred from your head to someone else's head. Discipleship is all encompassing, it's all of life. It's when you're with me as I'm raising my children, it's when I'm with you as you're going through depression, it's when we're working together, it's when we're playing together, it's when we're celebrating together, it's when we're grieving together. This was God's discipleship plan for Israel. When he said, parents, this is how I want you to raise your children, listen to the language that he uses. He says, these words that I command you today, so that's the information, right? Here's the information. I want you to teach them diligently to your children, okay? Information transfer. Are you sure, Sean? It's not just information transfer? How do you teach them diligently to your children? By talking of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. And when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and, you shall, and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Right? This is all of life discipleship. Moms, dads, everything that you do with your children is a discipleship opportunity. If you want to know more of what that looks like, I would just ask you to go take Shane Hopkins out for lunch Hey, bro, can I buy you some lunch after church? Or can I come sit with you and talk with you one day at your house? Can we do tea or something? I don't know, whatever you want to do. And just ask Shane what it looks like to make every opportunity a discipleship opportunity with your children. Think about Jesus when he called the disciples to himself. He didn't say, All right, here's the deal. We're going to meet up for once a month and I'm going to lecture you. You know, every month we're going to get together and I got a three hour lecture and you're going to learn a lot from me. No. He said, Follow me. And then they did life together. if you think about what the Thessalonians are going through, their suffering, their persecution, their affliction, did they learn about these things in a letter? Or did they experience them? Affliction and persecution does not come through the mail, and neither should Christian discipleship. That's not to say that Skype calls and letters and long-distance relationships don't have a place. They do. But you have to understand that they have a very, very, very limited place. Many churches right now are grappling with this reality. They're trying to use technology to fill a void that they shouldn't be. I understand that times are hard. Circumstances are difficult. I've encouraged some of our members to stay home, and I'm always encouraged when they go, no way, I'm coming to church, you can't stop me, okay? But I understand that things are difficult, and sometimes we need to use technology to fill the gap, just like with me and my Skype call with my kids. But what is not okay is churches that are taking this as an opportunity to try and create a new normal, where churches don't have to see each other face-to-face in order to be a church. Friends, that is not okay. Uh, When the pandemic first began, we were not able to meet together as a church for uh, six weeks. And a lot of people asked me if I was going to be doing virtual services. Um, And I told them no. And the reason why I told them no is this. Uh, Our culture is already on the road to trying to replace this, what we're doing here and now together, physical presence. Our culture is already trying to replace that with virtual presence. And I knew. I'm telling you, I knew. I talked about it at a members meeting before everything shut down. I knew that the pandemic was going to make that worse and that people were going to try to make that the new normal. And I wanted our church to experience something different. I wanted our church to miss being with one another. I wanted our church to miss the gathering. I wanted our church to feel like every Sunday something really big and important was missing from our lives. You know why? Because every Sunday, something really big and important was missing from our lives. I did not want to try to create an artificial sense of normalcy for you. I didn't want you to feel like you were basically getting along, like, oh, yeah, things are kind of halfway normal. This is not that bad. No, I wanted you to feel like this is bad so that when we were able to get back together, you could see how amazing God's version of normal really is so you could appreciate the gathering. And wouldn't you know, friends, that's exactly what happened. Never seen people more excited to be in the same room together, all masked up and far apart. And we're still glad to be here. Brothers and sisters, we are created for close fellowship and relational intimacy. And one day all of God's children will be folded into God's presence. And our need for that intimacy will be completely fulfilled forever. But until then, we gather here now. Together, we lock arms and we march towards heaven, trusting that Jesus will take us safely home. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that we get to be in a place where we can meet together, where our doors haven't been shut down, uh, where the saints feel comfortable being in the same place at the same time. We pray for those who aren't able to experience face-to-face ministry. And because of that, those who may be wavering in their faith, those who may be facing temptation from Satan, we are anxious for them, Lord. We pray earnestly that you would protect them and keep them and allow them to come back together soon. Amen. Please stand as we sing together, Come Thou Fount.